0: This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, someone I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for, and someone who has had a tremendous impact on my life. He signed his book, Under Fire, for me when I was 18 years years old, having watched him during his testimony during Iran-Contra, and we discuss his time in Vietnam, which he chronicles in his book, Under Fire, and his time on the National Security Council during the rise of Islamic terrorism. We talk about his involvement with Achille Laurel and everything that followed. Just an amazing individual. He spent 17 years at Fox News, bringing us war stories from the front lines, and has done so much for this nation, so now, without further ado, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. It is uh, such an honor for me well, to uh, to get to spend a little bit of time with you. It means uh, it means the world, so thank you.
1: You know, when when I was in the Marines, the idea that you'd be able to do this kind of thing never even crossed anybody's mind. You know, Amazing. It's just, I'm sure, as a SEAL, you saw you know the front end of where we are today, and and it's. Going on and on, COVID COVID actually changed the way we do things. It really did.
0: It did it made people more much more comfortable with this and not yeah. flying and for a sit yeah. down and realize we can move forward. But right. when you talk about technology, interestingly uh, enough. Um, so this is, you signed this for me when I was 18 years old. I have a copy. So I, I, I just, I barely crack it because I don't want to, I have another copy here that I, that I go to for research, but, uh, you signed that for me when I was 18, right there. First edition. Yeah. And, uh, that's it. The first edition right there. So it's one of my most, uh, most treasured books and, uh, but this is the one that I go through when I'm when I'm uh, doing research, uh, particularly about the the time in the '80s about terrorism, everything going on in well, Vietnam. I've got that in
1: a couple of your books too. I mark them up. I use a highlighter. Oh, and I thank Tab you. the ends of them, dog ear the pages, which is one of the things you cannot do if you're in, in an ebook. You can't tab things like that.
0: That's right. I much prefer a physical copy. Oh yeah. Just turning that page. It, I just have to have a, a physical book. I can't really even really do the audio books. I like the the physical copy yeah. right there to to mark up. But it's talking about technology. When you're, I went back and and uh, and looked through uh, under fire. And when you got to the National Security Council and got to your office, uh, the technology that you would think would be attached to essentially attached to the White House uh, yeah. was was a little a decades old.
1: It was. In fact, uh, the the reason why things got better is Admiral John Poindexter is a genius, right? And on top of it, he invented the very first laptops. And he had an arrangement made out with a national science advisor to the president from his former company. And they actually built us portable laptops. And this is 1981. Yeah, Nobody one had them.
0: Yeah, he, and, he did that was, as a hobby. Wasn't he doing that on the side? That was kind yeah, of his he, thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, at one point, we're flying back from, I think it was the meeting with Mitterrand, trying to get overflight rights for the attack on Libya. And of course, Mitterrand turned us down, which is why we lost an airplane and, and two, you know, two. Air Force pilots. Uh, anyway, we're flying back and the Admiral said to me, do you have any hobbies? I said, yeah, I used to build model airplanes and fly them, radio controlled, you know, gas, uh, uh, fuel powered, not, uh, not, batteries didn't last right. that long in those days. And I said, how about you, sir? He says, well, I, I built a couple of computers and a couple of TVs. <laughs> and I said, well, from like Heath Kits or something like that, or Radio Shack? He said, no, from scratch. So, that's you know, amazing. his own chips.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, amazing, I
1: mean, amazing, amazing man.
0: <laughs> and I can imagine you answering that question about hobbies, especially with how busy you were back then. I mean, really, I mean, terrorism had been on the horizon for quite some time, but a yeah. lot of it was overseas. And now it started to really pick up steam and momentum here in the 80s when you took that seat. But, but before that, and I want to talk about the, this new book, We Didn't Fight for Socialism. Um, yeah. I, I read it over the weekend so important that every American reads this book right now. And I'm as soon as we're we're done with uh, with this today, I'm gonna pass this on to my daughter, who's in high school. Uh, so important Great. for her to be reading this right now. Um, and I want to talk about that. but before we get there, um, sure. growing up, uh, did what are some of those things that were passed along to you? From uh, from your parents and in your childhood, that you in turn passed sure. to your kids and, and grandkids when we're thinking yeah. about hard work and building citizens to lead the next generation? What are some of those things sure. that were instilled in you at a young well, age?
1: Yeah. Uh, I have to share this with you because my mom and dad met at a USO dance at Fort Niagara in upstate New York in 1941. Uh, they got married in 1942. By the time I was born at uh, Fort Sam Houston, In Texas, dad was already gone to Europe to part of Patton's third army to uh, get ready to invade Normandy. And so uh, I grew up with a legacy. Uh, My dad, uh, all my uncles, um, maternal and paternal, uh, all served in World War II Korea or both in some cases. And uh, that experience growing up that way, moving all over the place as, as part of the army, my dad was a soldier, Uh, My dad started the second world wars. My mom would remind us all my brothers and I all served in different branches of the armed forces. My sister married an Air Force doc. And no one ever said you've got to serve, but we all wanted to, because that legacy is very important, as you know, from being a SEAL. And, And your time in the service is going to influence your offspring and everybody who knows you. And so we used to, in the recruiting commands, they would call these legacy appointments to the service academies or to ROTC, legacy commissions for those who went through OCS, uh, or legacy enlistments. And they are dropping like a stone, and many of the reasons are right there in that book. And, and I look at that and say, that's not a good thing. I mean, I've got I've got 18 grandkids, 11 boys, seven girls. Girls have got granddad wrapped right, right where they want them. Uh, they are. I mean, the pushback I'm getting now is, in large part because of the current administration, I don't want to serve in this. I, I just told one of them over the weekend, he's a, he's a junior in high school, he's getting ready to graduate, he's doing very, very well, and I've been encouraging him to apply to all the service academies. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, I'm not sure I want to serve with these guys. I said, well, here's what to think about. They will not be there when you get commissioned as a second lieutenant or as an ensign, right? And so don't think in terms of how screwed up things are right now in the aftermath of Afghanistan and all the rest of it. But think about, one, you're going to graduate from college without any college loan debt. Number two, you will have a good job. And as you know, an ensign or a second lieutenant is today paid what I was being paid as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps. (laughs) Maybe more. good, Good, Exactly. So it's a good paying job. It's the kind of thing you can look yourself in the mirror in the morning when you shave and say, I'm serving my country and you'd have to do four or five, six years, depending on what you're going to do in the service. But those are the kinds of things I can look back on. You can look back on and say, I'm glad I did it. There's some absolutely horrific experiences that you can have, but the fact is we've served our country. And there's a great deal of satisfaction in that, despite the current administration.
0: Despite the current administration. I I
1: grew up with that kind of background. And and so I enlisted the Marine Corps. I'm first time I raised my right hand and took the oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I was in the recruiting office in Rochester, New York, on the 29th of December, 1961. Wow. And that's the first time I did it. From that, I got the appointment to the Naval Academy out of the Marine Reserves and glad to have it and the, the wonderful opportunity it was to graduate from a place like that and learn a lot about leadership, mostly things. But I had learned I will never do that to my troops. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what it's like. Uh, yeah. A plebe summer, I'm sure, was interesting, especially oh, yeah. back then. Uh, not as many rules in place, uh, I'm guessing. Uh, but initially, you wanted to fly. Is that right? You wanted to fly yeah. at some point along the was, way. I, but then you had an experience similar a, to a lot of people that I know in the military. They wanted to get to the fight. And you wanted yeah, to absolutely. get to Vietnam. And yeah. that's why that's how you ended up in uh, the Marine Corps not flying is because you didn't want to miss that war, you yeah. wanted to serve. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, and you got to remember that the mind of a 25 year old. That's what I hold because I three years before I after I graduated from high school before I started the Naval Academy, and so looking back on that, the rush to get to the war, there was plenty of time. Yeah, but the bottom line of it is, I got to be a rifle platoon commander, and that Vietnam experience was invaluable for the rest of my life. Has been up, up to this very day, and so I look at that experience and I say. Yeah, I I was guaranteed air. I got hurt. By the time I was able to pass the flight physical, I was too old to fly. Almost got out of the Marine Corps at that point. In fact, I'd applied for a job with EDS, Ross Perot's company. And my battalion commander in combat was was by then the aide to the secretary of the Navy, he was brigadier general. And uh, he said, well, look, before you leave, so Mr. Perot's coming in next week. Come on up from Quantico and... You can meet your new boss. Well, because it was a setup. Uh-huh. And yeah. and Perot had in his pocket my resignation letter because I was all PO'd that I wasn't going to be able to fly. And finally, been able to pass the flight physical. Then they dropped because the war was over, dropped the age limits and I couldn't couldn't fly. So I was gonna get out. And, that's and Perot a- sat there and gave me what I call Patriotic Lecture 14B. (laughs) He had it down. And at the end, everybody in the room had tears in their eyes. And he had lost his his roommate and dear friend uh, in a helicopter. uh, Actually, he was hit by a mortar around the helicopter. And so Perot knew about the Marine Corps. and knew because his roommate was a legendary Marine. And at the end of the day, Perot said, said, he said, are you going to stay now? I said, yes, sir. He said, good. Reaches in his pocket, pulls out the paper and says, tear this up set <laughs> up.
0: We're so <laughs> you walked right into that ambush. Uh, I did, <laughs> I did. <laughs> right into that L-shaped ambush from your your yeah. boss and from Perot. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. You just you describe that in the in the story, and I remember uh, reading it when I was eighteen. And of course, back then I was reading everything I possibly could about warfare, particularly about Vietnam, because uh, it was the most recent thing I could read about in the eighties. Um, and uh, and I went back to it, and I remember reading it when I was eighteen. I remember uh, the, those stories that you were you are telling in here and passing on so those lessons uh, in this book. Because it's much more than just a book about uh, one section of your life. I mean, it is, I'm going to make sure my daughter reads this one as well, Mm -hmm. because it was so, so impactful to me. And and I wanted to ask you about your first day in Vietnam. Like when, when you land and you get off that, that transport, um, what do you, what are your memories from that first day stepping foot in Vietnam? Yeah. Well, they're vivid. Uh, you had a
1: sea bag, you have no flak jacket, no helmet and no firearm. Right. I did in the bottom of my bag, I actually got I brought in the 45 that I'd been awarded at the Naval Academy. It was one of the awards that, that and a sword. There were both awards uh, at the Academy. And I had a very brief honeymoon. We got married on the 13th of November, 1968. And we're planning on a 30-day transit across the country, driving someone else's car over there. You still do this in the SEALs, I know. And the Marine Corps, they'll post on a bulletin board or nowadays on an iPad. Hey, I'm being PCS'd from... Permanent change of station for those of you. Who don't, PCS from here to there, and I I need a car. My car delivered, and so you'd sign up and you'd go pick up the car. And so we had a borrowed colonel's car. He was being transferred from Washington D.C. to San Diego, and so we booked our. I booked the flight from San Diego at the end of the month, after a month of leave, to to uh, SFO because every flight at that point in the war, 1968, everybody's flying out of. Eglin Air Force Base. And we were in Texas, driving across the country. we have been married for 10 days. And I, again, you didn't have cell phones and all that emails. <laughs> so I, my leave address was my dad, retired Army Colonel. He knows how to do it. I call home every night. I called home that night in Texas. It was snowing. I just bought my lovely new wife, uh, a wonderful pair of warm boots that she still has, I think. And, uh, he said, I got bad news for you. You got to be in San Diego in 72 hours. And so we team drove across the country. We had a pre Thanksgiving breakfast or yeah, pre Thanksgiving meal at a Hardee's out there. Put me on the airplane. She cried. And I flew the Eglin into Vietnam through Okinawa and uh, on a 707, in fact, uh, packed full of brand new recruits and a few comebacks. And I can remember getting off the, the 707, running right over to a C-130, flying up from Da Nang to Dong Ha, which is right up on the DMZ, where 3rd Marine Division was. A corporal says, stand over there, sir, you're in 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, and somebody will be here to pick you up. And the person who came to pick me up was wearing a torn up flak jacket, a ripped helmet cover on him. The knees were gone out of his dungarees, or what we call utilities, uh, his One one boot was taped to the to the sole. And he's and he's just looks, he's got a four-day growth of beard. He's got a a bandage on his his right arm. And he's got a jeep that looks like it's been blown up. And he says, Come on with me, we got to get in this convoy going up to Kan which was right up on the DMZ, literally about four clicks north from where, where five clicks north of where we landed. And I, I said, well, are you the S3, sir? or Are you the XO? He said, no, I'm the chaplain, Bob Bettingfield, and, and a remarkable man. Because eventually, I, I wrote him up for a Silver Star because in, in a terrible gunfight, he was throwing hand grenades and loading machine guns and, and helping defend a part of the perimeter where everybody had been killed or wounded. Anyway, uh, we arrive at Kantian right after a rocket barrage. Uh, I met my platoon, There were 31 out of a 46 man T.O. uh, And I picked one guy and said, you're going to be my radio operator. And this guy, you're going to be my corpsman. And you guys are going to stay very close to me. Of course, the length of a handset cord for nine months until Jim was terribly wounded and, and came home. That experience of being able to say, I'm looking at you guys for the very first time in my life. And I want you as my radio operator. Now, some of that's a gift of the good Lord. Some of it's the ability to see in someone's eyes what kind of person that they are. And I was blessed with that. And so it turns out after the war, Jim Leonard, badly wounded, I'd had two years of college. And of course, you spend that long in the field with a PRC-25, five batteries in your backpack. And he's carrying the 25-pound radio everywhere we go. And of course, as you know, that's a very basic piece of equipment, 25 pounds, plus the battery, about the size of and weight of a brick. And uh, you get to know each other pretty well. He became a maxillofacial surgeon after the war. No kidding. So not your average everyday guy, yeah. but the kind of person that you have enormous affection for and the kind of experience that we take with us to the grave. And, and thank God, both of us survived the experience. We're still in touch. Uh, of the 31 guys that I picked up, we eventually went through 72 Marines. Some, some rotated home. We actually had a few that weren't even wounded. Uh, we're back down to ready for this. 31. There's 31 of us of the 72 guys still alive. And because Jim is the communicator, he keeps us in touch with each other.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: All these guys that I had went on to do great things in life. I mean, these were, these are guys who became chiefs of police and sheriffs and they became uh, the head of nuclear security for at Sandia labs. we, We've got guys that went off to become very, very successful developers, and and guys who teamed up with their brothers or with other other veterans, engineers, most of them, and be, one of them built the island of Saint Saint Simon's Island, or off the coast of Georgia. No kidding. Pra- practically every building on it, Buy and sell us all? I mean, amazing. It's, it's those kinds of guys that I had the great experience with. That's incredible.
0: And do you still have that 1911 by any chance? That yeah, uh, that you. I do. And I do. Was that I, was that smuggling it in at the time, or was that allowed? No, I, I think we're actually allowed to do it. Yeah. At that point, I was probably
1: less willing to. You know, have a bad experience with the law. Got
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. And and you led something like seventy ambushes in in Vietnam. And yeah. you're up you're up north. And for those that are that are listening, you're fighting pretty, the, the NVA up there. So the Viet Cong. Yeah. The, that's are down, down south, but you're yeah. fighting NVA up up north. And you're you're leading seventy some ambushes. Um, what was that typical loadout and, and you're carrying things like, like you have an M16, but you have, you have a shotgun. I think you carried a Swedish K at some point and yeah. like all sorts of things going on. But what was your typical loadout when you guys got ready and you, you headed out to execute one of these ambushes?
1: Yeah. So when I got there, uh, there were three lieutenants, no executive officer, no company commander. Uh, and we, we burned through a bunch of them. Uh, I'm looking at The basic load was probably pretty close to 75 pounds. I mean, every one of the things I did with my Marines is everybody's going to carry their first aid pack in the same place. You're going to carry your bayonet in the same place. I don't care what you like. You're going to do it this way. Because if you get wounded and I need hand grenades, I know where to look for them.
0: Or I need ammo.
1: Or any of the kinds of things you need. Radio batteries. So every one of my Marines, for example, would carry a mortar round. Because every time I went out on an ambush, I wanted that 60 millimeter mortar right there with me, so we could adjust it very quickly on the ground in the middle of an ambush. Get some up, particularly if it's at night. Those kinds of things. You know, I, in fact, it's probably the only medal I actually deserve. I mean that. I mean, I, I trained them very, very well on how to kill people, and you know what I'm talking about because you've been there, done that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not particularly euphoric about that. If we hadn't killed them, they would have killed us. Uh, But I can recall today, almost every one of those ambushes I was on personally, uh, we never took a casualty on an ambush. We always killed them, captured some. Uh, I would go through the packs of of the guys, if you had time in the kill zone, Uh, you'd clear, if you didn't fire your claymores, it was, it was usually easier to do. As you know, gunshots don't make as many holes in bodies as a Claymore mine. Uh, almost every one of those resulted in dead enemy, some live. Taking prisoners is important, particularly up on the DMZ. Interestingly enough, when I take a map off a North Vietnamese Army soldier, usually an officer, uh, there was no DMZ showing on it. They, <laughs> they truly had been trained and indoctrinated that this is all one country. No. And uh I remember one of the ambushes, we had to bring a a a prisoner of war back because the Paris peace talks had just started. Early, I guess it's early 1969. And we had to bring back a prisoner to prove that he, he was in the DMZ. And we did. So our guys got very, very good at ambushes. So good that I grew up hunting and fishing. My dad taught my brothers and me how to hunt, how to fish. I did not hunt again for another 20 years. Wow. And I just lost it. The guy who talked me into coming back to doing that was a fellow by the name of Joe Foss, Mm -hmm. Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. Uh, He's the guy who brought me to the NRA. He's the guy that bought me my first life membership. Wow. I bought a bunch of those since then for for my family members. I, I look at that experience of going back to hunting as something that kind of renewed me that I'd lost the taste for it yeah. with all those ambushes. I can see that. If, if you run it out, it's about one every three days out of the 13-month tour.
0: It's and, and it's not just doing the ambushes, you were on the receiving end of ambushes and oh, yeah. attacks as, as well. Yeah. And uh, would you, when you think back and you remember, I mean, you think about this, and it's obviously still very clear, like almost yesterday, um, how did Private First Class Johnson's uh, death impact your life going forward? and then any leadership lessons um, out of that the first, experience? First Marine to die in my arms. Uh,
1: you know, I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the wall. Uh, and every time I go, it's a very emotional experience because there's the names of the guys and the dates in which they died. Uh, the worst day of my life uh, was the 28th, the night of the 28th, 29th of July, 1969. I lost more Marines around me, a company commander platoon commander, seven Marines dead, 19 wounded, unforgettable. And to this day, that's a bad day for me, the 29th of July, 28th, 29th of July. Uh, Johnson was the very first. He was hit, uh, killed, he did not die instantly like the letter to his family said. It took him about four hours to die. It was in the middle of a terrible rainstorm. We'd been probed, the little position we had out in the mountains. And uh, it took him about four hours to die. And, and that's a terrible experience. I mean, our corpsman tried, like the Dickens, to save his life, worked over him the whole time until he finally died.
0: Yeah. And you, you were wounded uh, a couple times here. And uh, what struck me about some of, of, of one of these times is that today, you'd be flown home. You'd be going to Germany. You'd be flown home to the United States. Uh, You would not be going back to lead your men like you did after they drained your lungs. I mean, you got right back in it and you're wounded in ambush. You go into triage and you, you talk about hearing the doctors around you putting people in these different triage categories. And for those that are listening, um, if you don't know what that is, it's, uh, hey, this person's not going to make it. They're expectant. They're going over here. Uh, you're going over here. Sometimes they have colors attached to that or ha- depending on the situation. But uh, but uh, somebody puts you in the right place and you get uh, your lungs drained and then you get right back to your unit.
1: Well, yeah, I, actually, I was actually wounded five times. Five uh, times. The rule in the day, in those days, 68, 69, Uh, And I guess it was even before that. Uh, 68 and 69 are the two bloodiest years of the Vietnam War. Uh, we were averaging 38 or 39 dead a day in Vietnam at that point. And uh, the uh, 25th of May, 1969, uh, the lead platoon was hit, going up. I actually had dysentery. So I was not the lead platoon commander going up and ambushed by a North Vietnamese Army battalion one small rifle company, not even up to full strength of 210 Marines. And uh, my orders were passed through. I have no recollection of saying the words "fix bayonets. Uh, I was carrying at the time a Model 12 military version of the Model 12 Winchester. It has a bayonet lug on it. And at one point, uh, a hand grenade went off very close to me, uh, cut through my hand and lodged in the cocking mechanism of the shotgun. And I couldn't cock it, so I used my 45 the rest of the way up that hill. It took us about four and a half hours to make it to the top, drove the enemy off it, a lot of airstrikes, a lot of artillery, and some very, very brave machine gunners who went with me. And we got to the top of the mountain. The company commander had already set up an LZ for medevac and the wounded. Thankfully, we didn't lose any killed, but we had a lot of people wounded. And when we got to the top of the hill, we put up a perimeter, you're know, pursued by fire. Uh, both indirect fire from Camp Carroll with the artillery and airstrikes, and the the company commander comes up to me, and, and he's carrying my shotgun. And it, it's and we're now medevac guys from the bomb craters that were further back down the hill. We're right on the DMZ, literally. The the red line of the DMZ was right where we were, and from there we launched an attack into the DMZ to get a prisoner of war. And so he's got the shotgun with him. He says. Lieutenant, what's the idea? And I said, Well, sir, if you don't notice, you can't cock it. And once you can't cock it, you can't clear the one you just shot. And so I dropped it on the ground. I used my 45. And he looked at me and he says, It is still a perfectly good bayonet carrier and a club. And it's government property. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's was tricking my chain. But that, that's the kind of report we had. When you go, I was medevaced the next day uh, by helicopter back to Delta Med, which was the triage hospital for the hospital ships. And, and I have no recollection of this, but I was told about it later. The division commander was there in the triage. There were 60-some-odd wounded guys from our company and then and the next Lima Company, commanded by a fellow by the name of Kulak, by the way, hmm. who becomes commandant of the Marine Corps wow. later on. And Kulak had been wounded the night of the 25th, and I got moved met back the next day. And I have no recollection of the event that General Davis described, because General Davis was the division commander. General Davis had been a Lieutenant Colonel in World War II awarded a Navy Cross at Peleliu. He was awarded the Medal of Honor and the breakout from the Frozen Chosen. Wow. So that's our division commander. Wow. And I have no recollection of him being there, but he told me this story. He said, the chaplain, Jake Laboon, commander, of the United States Navy, was the head of chaplains for the division. And he was in the in the triage tent as they brought in the guys that were off your helicopters. He had just given you the last rites when they came out of triage and said, who's next? And Laboon looked up at him and said, take this one. And they took you instead of the guy next to you, because otherwise you would probably be dead. So and and you understand, Ray Davis was a kind of devout Southern Baptist, never heard a man utter a four-letter word. Jake Laboon said to me, you get down on your knees every day, young man, and you thank God for that Catholic chaplain who saved your life. That's the kind of people I got to serve with. Oh, that is incredible. And was that uh,
0: was that where Bill Haskell was wounded? Which one was, uh,
1: was it- Haskell was wounded on the twenty fifth of May. You now some days of your life is, and, you, and you know this because you know what it's like. Some days of your life you never forget. I'll never forget the twenty fifth of May. I'll never forget what happened on the night of the twenty 29th of July. It was horrible, terrible days. And Bill and I, till the day he passed, we remained very, very close friends. And of course, Bill died of what all of, almost all of these guys are dying of now, so far, not me, but cancer yeah. because of Agent Orange. Because we, we swam in it, we drank it, we washed our clothes in it, we, uh, we were walking around in it. It rained on us like
0: Agent Orange. I mean, for months, year, I mean, yep. it's just... Oh, the long-term effects of that, and makes me think of the, uh, the, the the smoke just from burning the trash and all these bases in Iraq and Afghanistan, nice. all those plastics and everything that uh, a lot of veterans yep. are dealing with uh, with today. Um, and oh my gosh! And Randy Herod, um, is that how you say his name, Herod? Yeah, Randy Herod. Um, his actions during is that is, is during that battle that where you're There's wounded. The 28th- same, the same of 28th and 29th. Where yeah, he distinguishes so himself and he is this one where he's on the on the 60 and he's manning that manning that uh, a- AW. Yeah.
1: Because that the tank that I got blown off of was already on fire. And Herod stopped the th- three different attacks that they launched that night. I mean, the carnage was horrific. And miraculously, they could not break through because he kept remounting that machine gun. Every time an RPG or even a hand grenade would go off near him. And the following morning, there were, the carnage was horrific. They had to have lost something in the neighborhood of 100 to 110 because some of the bodies were ground up by the tanks falling over, over top of them. It was uh, a big battle just west of Cantienne, where I'd begun my tour back the previous November, where I celebrated our Thanksgiving together with a rifle platoon. Wow. So here we are. and And the division at that point in time had already been given orders you're going to start withdrawing. throwing. And the company commander was in that tank, was killed the night before he was due to rotate home. Mike Wunsch.
0: Those stories are heartbreaking when they're so close. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many yeah. of those that for some reason happened like that. And, uh, and there's something you talk about in, the, in, in the, the book. You talk about the significance of Psalm 91. And uh, I'll read that for those who aren't familiar with it, but um, it reads, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. What was the significance of uh, of, of that psalm to you when you were in Vietnam?
1: Well, you know, it's called the Soldier's P- Psalm, and it's for that very reason. And I still, I've got my good book down here in my bag right now. I'd reach for it, but I'd have to drop off camera and the dog will start licking my ears <laughs> I drop down because she's here too. But uh, I use that a lot. And, when, and you and I both do You know, public speaking and, and things like that. I was at a, one event last uh, last weekend. And I look at that as a reinforcement. I mean, there's a lot of promises in that. And even though it's Old Testament, it's the promises of God Almighty that make all the difference in my life, right? And there's a lot of promises. And it turned out that's that's true. I was hurt a bunch of times, but never out of never taken out of the battle in the midst of it. Always managed to stick around to the end of it. Uh just got issued a brand new government issued me in November oh, nice. year ago because I got hurt. I wasn't it said in some news report that I'd been wounded. And I, I have to confess, and you know, you and I know what we're talking about here. Fox News paid me a lot more to get shot at than the Marine Corps. <laughs> did. So and I'm grateful. So I got to keep company with heroes for 17 years with Fox News. And the last trip I made overseas, I've been deployed with a bunch of your buddies to places you and I both. We were there, it turns out, several times in the same place. That's right. I
0: saw you in Normandy in, uh, in oh, yeah. 2005, 2006. I saw you there. And
1: when Ramadi was the bloodiest place on the planet Earth at that time, mm-hmm. as you and I know well, so I, I was covering the, the fight for Mosul in twenty seventeen, and uh, it said I was wounded. I wasn't. I was covering the Peshmerga with a small handful of Americans of various branches that we could not talk about, we could not show on camera, and I I always obeyed those mm-hmm. those rules. I wasn't out there to try to get not trying to get an Edward R. Murrow Award I- for exposing some horrible thing that the Americans have done. But we had, as you know, some really good, brave SEALs, Special Forces, MARSAC guys, and NATO allies who provided a lot of indirect fire support, both air and artillery. And so we're on the mountaintop just as we're getting ready to go into in, back into Mosul the next morning. And we've been there already a couple of times already. Very exciting. Uh, and, and I'm trying not to get hurt, but I hear way off in the distance, I hear two, two, two. toot, so, you know, five mortars in the air. Can't tell quite what they are, but sounds like 82s to me. And I wake up and I grab the guy next to me, who is a Peshmerga uh, lieutenant, lieutenant. And I grab the other guy next to me who's my, who's my, my uh, cameraman. And we start running for the French forward observer bunker. Yeah. Who's, I mean, it's really good. You know, a bunker for a Peshmerga soldier is, you know, usually a sheet of steel. on four sandbags. Right? <laughs> These guys had, you know, these are 20 sandbags thick, uh, great observation posts, great comms. And we're running for that. It's the middle of the night and I'm breaking all the rules. I don't have my chin strap fastened, <laughs> my head. I'm bouncing around top of my head. My NVGs are useless when that happens. My flak jacket is open and I'm running like the Dickens. I don't even see the hole that I fell into. Oh. And I crushed my right knee, oh. just crushed it. And so uh ended up getting... Transported the other side in the back of a pickup truck. There was a uh, Army 18 Delta. Probably just got somebody in trouble. An, an 18 Delta Medic yep, is what they are, right? These guys can do surgery. They're yeah. that good. So he gave me a shot of morphine. And uh, I ended up getting one of those wonderful C 17s out of Erbil, back to, to a Launch Duel, Launch Duel back to uh, and, and a brand new government issued knee the next day. Well, 48 hours later. Wow. After I got hurt. And a great Army surgeon graduate of West Point had gone to the defense medical university up there at Bethesda, terrific guy. And it's now the best knee I've got. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I could see how that's uh, that, that could be the case with everything you've done oh, yeah. throughout your life. Oh, incredible. It, uh, and also in this, what struck me is uh, the letters that you, you wrote home and you, you, your, your parents kept them and you have a couple, there's a, there's a lot of, of sentences that stood out to you. But uh, a couple were were interesting. Um, And one said, most of all, I wish the politicians would get off their fat, soft posteriors and come through with something one way or the other to clear this mess up. And when I read that recently, uh, as I was going through this (laughs) again last night, I was thinking, oh, uh, did he write this last year? Uh, (laughs) So it seems to be a common theme uh, that has uh, plagued us or maybe the world for most of, uh, of time when you have senior level military leaders, civilian leaders. They don't really understand the nature of the conflict yeah. in which they're engaged. And of course I'm thinking about Afghanistan when I read that. And then this one too, you said, believe me, I pray every day, not just for myself, but for getting these Marines home safe. And uh, I mean, that just says so much about, about you. That's where your that's where your head's at. That's what you're thinking about uh, is your guys downrange. And Yeah. Uh, you, well, they kept me alive. You know, and you know, I, I,
1: I like to think I've got some pretty good situational awareness uh, since that book came out. And up until very recently, Betsy and I were leading pilgrims over to the Holy land and we're on one of our trips and, and we always started the sea of Galilee and then work our way back down to Jerusalem. So we've been there at that point for five or six days, I think, and out of, out of a 10 day trip. And we're at the David Citadel hotel downtown. Uh, where, by the way, a lot of U.S. government people of different entities mm-hmm. and activities, if you get my drift, yep. use that place. Behind that hotel was the safe house I used in the 1980s. No kidding. And so I would always look for the balcony, and I'd point that out to Betsy. And she, that, she learned it over many years. That's the one. I said, All Yeah, right. that's where William Paul Good stayed. I didn't stay there. William Paul has my picture oh, in it. Oh, yeah. Same date of birth, same place <laughs> of birth. Yeah. You, you know what I mean. Oh, saying. yeah. So." So we're standing in the lobby. We're about to go have dinner with Bibi and, wow. his, and his wife, Sarah. And we're waiting for another couple to come down, major donors to our foundation, Freedom Alliance. And I'm looking out the front window and I see a tour bus come in. And I know it's full of gringos because I see the sign on the side of the bus as it pulls by. It says, Mike Huckabee, Holy Land Tours. <laughs> has to be full of gringos, right? No way. And it, meanwhile, the bus pulls. All oh, she sees see is the back of the bus. I tap on the shoulder and say, we've got to get out of here because we're about to get mobbed. I said, why? She says, why? I said, because that bus is full of gringos. She says, how do you know? And at that point, we'd only been married for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I just, I've got great situational awareness. <laughs> she shakes her head. First guy walks off the bus, walks right over to me. And as you know, in Israel, you got to carry your own bags. You don't have, you know, porters and all that stuff for good reasons. And so he walks right over to me and says, Anybody ever tell you you look a lot like Ollie North? And I said, Well, it's a good thing I look like Ollie North because I'm sleeping with his wife. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> At that point, without missing it, and of course, Betsy's you know, she's gone through. Mortified, yeah, she's, yeah. It is. <laughs> he says to me, "You better watch yourself. Her husband's a U.S. Marine. He'll kick your butt." <laughs> and he walks away. <laughs> and she says, you didn't see that coming, did you, Mr. Situational Awareness?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good comeback. That guy was quick. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Um, but and such as you know,
1: you know, from your experience in the SEALs, situational awareness is crucial to surviving. And, you know, I, I tell people, I say, when someone says, I've got your back, turn around and make sure you know who that is. And if it's somebody who's got good situational awareness, you're in good hands. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. And as you and I know, and I'm not sure that outside of law enforcement, most Americans don't have to deal with that. Unless, of course, you're in Colorado and you know, somebody high on God knows what is coming in your direction, closer, closing rate is roughly 150 miles an hour, mm-hmm. right? And I think about that every once in a while. Where would I when I walk into a room and I'll bet you do the same thing, I'm looking for where's the exit? Mm-hmm. We go to movies, so we go to a restaurant you driving down a highway if i have to pull over where will i go because there's a there's a guardrail here and maybe there's not over there mm-hmm. if this guy crosses the line where those kinds of things are the direct experience of the kind of experience that you and i have had and it it probably does a lot to keep us alive
0: i think so i mean there's a reason because yeah. when people then when the tribes used to have to go to war once they came home they still had to hunt to put food on the table for their family for their tribe yeah. um and so a lot of those things are are very very similar um, yep. and I, yeah, I encourage everybody to read, read under fire, particularly if you're in the military, the last section of chapter five titled combat. Um, there's some, a lot of amazing lessons. I'm not going to read it here. I want everybody to, to read it in the book and read the entire thing. Um, but there's some great lessons in that last few paragraphs that are very, very moving. Um, and then you get home and something happens. Um, Randy Harrod hat runs into some trouble and yeah. you stand up and you go back to Vietnam to testify on his behalf, I think as a character witness, um, talk about what he did for you over there. Um, and well, I think a lot of yeah, people I mean, wouldn't uh, have done that that are looking at the career path. I mean, there, there's a reason that's called profession of arms, not the career of arms, and mm. I always think about that. And you were that professional, and you stood up and you went back to Vietnam to testify on this this uh, Marine's behalf. Can you well, talk about yeah, that a little was, bit? Sure. Rand, Randy,
1: uh, a mer- meritorious corporal, which is an E-4, uh, Terrific machine gunner saved us on the 28th, 29th of July, 1969. The rule then was if you haven't got six months in country, as your unit is pulling out, you get sent down to a unit that was going to be there for another six months, and that was Randy's case. So he went down to First Marine Division because he was a corporal, and they could read in his record book when they when he got there that he'd been written up for a Navy Cross for that battle that night. And so, unfortunately, the lieutenant that he had relatively new in country. Uh, basically, you and I both know what a five paragraph order, situation, mission, execution, admin, logistics, command, and signal, right? His five paragraph order consisted of, you're a corporal, you may be new here, but you get down to the bottom of that, and then that draw down there, kill everything that moves. That was the five paragraph order. Randy Harrod knew how to do ambushes, and he did an ambush. You don't start with halt who goes there. You simply open fire with a closed bolt weapon, follow it with a claymore, then the M60s, and that's L-shaped ambush, you said it, we've been there done that. And so the end result was you had a whole bunch of civilians, old men, young women, children, only a couple of young guys, probably Viet Cong. He'd never seen a Viet Cong, he'd never seen North Vietnamese Army. Up where we were, that's all we saw. He saw Vietnamese, it was NVA. And so I was asked by his lawyers, what did you teach him about how to do an ambush? I said, I'm at Quantico teaching ambushes right now to new lieutenants who hopefully will do a better job than his lieutenant had done. And so they arranged for me to come out and not as a character witness, but explain to the board. And I also make I made another recommendation. said, don't have any enlisted on the board. Have only combat experienced officers. No, I don't mean to offend anybody. No supply officers. No guys that are you know, doing logistics. Combat officers. The president of the court. John Blue, Colonel of the United States Marine Corps, Regimental Commander, Navy Cross. Okay, and every other one of the people on that board. So they listened to what, how I described how he'd been trained and how he had done exactly what he'd been trained to do. And of course, spoke of, of his bravery that saved probably that whole side of the perimeter, if not the perimeter itself, in that terrible night of the, uh, the 28th, 29th of July. And the court did the right thing. This was in the aftermath of the My Lai massacre. OK, the Marine Corps was not about to have any cover ups. They did not want that experience. And for those of us who lived through that era and all those who knew what was going on, it was a terrible thing. The Marine Corps was not going to have that. So the end result was Randy and his Marines were eventually exonerated. He was not guilty at that point. And then they'd already tried several others and they were all eventually freed up as well. And that's a- And it was the right thing to do. I was told not to go. I was not ordered, but I was strongly suggested this would be the end of my Marine Corps career.
0: You did it anyway, which yeah. speaks uh, which speaks volumes um, to you. That's why you have so much respect from everyone up and down the chain of command. Um, but uh, right around this time, you go on firing line with William F. Buckley. <laughs> uh, you know, that, what was that experience like? And. Well, well, it's, it's, it's incredible that in, like, they allowed TV. you to do it, because in today's day and age, you know, I don't I think that they would maybe allow that. But I think this is, maybe things are so new back then, or but for whatever reason, they say yes, and you get to go on and, uh, well, and talk and, about and all
1: three of us. Yeah, all three of us were uh, experienced in Vietnam. All three of us had been shot at and hit in Vietnam. All three of us knew how to do an ambush. All of us were instructors at Quantico, and so uh, John Bender, Don Carpenter, and I. Uh, were picked from the, that I guess, Buckley had asked for it. Uh, I knew that I was going to have to carry a dictionary with me because that's the way Bill Buckley was. <laughs> there were going to be words he was going to use, and I, you know, sure. I don't know how to spell that much, less so let's know what it means. Uh, it was a positive experience. I think that we, deport, we represented the Marine Corps well. We're all young officers. I think we were all captains at the time. John Bender went on to have a wonderful career in another government agency. Don Carpenter became the CEO of a major corporation, uh, and we're all old geezers. And Bill Buckley is, of course, gone. Yeah.
0: And when you look back at that time, very formative. Of course, you've had you've had significant periods that were were formative uh, in in your life. But when you look back at that Vietnam experience in particular, um, what lessons did you did you take personally and professionally uh, moving forward that you've passed on to, to your kids and grandkids or that you used throughout the rest of your life?
1: Well, first of all, everything in life is a lot easier if all you do is tell the truth, okay? I mean, if there's a seminal moment, and it's there when, when Buckley's trying to pull out of guys, okay, bad things, okay? All you have to do is tell the truth about the good things. And the good things are the kind of courage that you and I see this when, when we've been in combat with these guys. When you think back to what happened to your guys in Ramadi, you know, I think up, up until uh, up until that time, I think it was the largest loss of SEAL life.
0: Right after I happened. was there. Yeah, in 2006, yeah. when it uh, so, took over. Yeah.
1: And so I, I look at that experience and say, you know, I, I knew who I could count on. I knew I could count on the two guys who were with me and they knew they could count on me. And when I say count on it, it's that matter. Just tell the truth. That's all you have to do. It's a lot easier. You don't have to remember a whole bunch of other stuff if you don't. And, and it, to me, that was a seminal moment of experience in a in a fairly hostile college audience. Interesting. Which is where Buckley was shooting the show back in
0: those days okay. in DC. Oh wow. And then those post Vietnam years. I mean, you think if you think about getting out, you walk right with all that combat experience. You walk into the Ross Perot ambush, uh, where you tears up that resignation <laughs> letter. All these things. Yeah. Uh, the post Vietnam years. Let's say the the seventies, up until you go to the National Security Council. Um, you uh, you're in Okinawa for a little bit, and that's where my my grandfather, who was a Marine, killed off Okinawa in 1945 when two kamikazes hit the bunker hill. He was a corsair pilot um but you're you're on okinawa uh i love the picture of betsy rappelling off the cliff uh it's, it's fantastic um but uh what were those years like and then did you have some mentors in the marine corps that uh oh, that yeah. kept you in yeah. and and kept you moving forward or encouraged you i should yeah. say I'm,
1: i at 75 i got sent to the marine headquarters and uh that was after the okinawa uh, experience and and our it was my battalion after i came home that did the the, the mayegues i mean if people forget we had a we had a similar experience, although nearly not nearly as bad as what we just witnessed in Afghanistan. Americans flying out. None of the sensors that we put in up on the DMZ from the DMZ down to Da Nang. None of them ever got used. Uh, the guys that I was training with got sent down to Alpha Company, First Battalion, Fourth Marines. And uh, that's Jim Mattis was one of my lieutenants. Wow. I put him through basic school and then he come out to uh, Okinawa. And so I look at those experiences and say, one of the great things about the experience I had in, in the Marine Corps is you were always ready to go somewhere. You may not know where you're going and why, and even when, but that experience does prepare you for, okay, pick up and go. And so in 1975, I got sent to the headquarters. And on the other side of a partition, the Marine headquarters at the time was eight wings built in Roosevelt's time, uh, during World War II. And it had been a, the naval naval personnel in the headquarters of the Marine Corps and the head of chaplains and things like that. On the other side of the petition on the top floor of this eight-wing building was a desk just like mine. It was a Marine major by the name of John Grinnells. And I would periodically catch John Grinnells reading on government time, the Holy Bible, right? And lean over. and And I was a captain and a major. He was a major and made lieutenant colonel. I'd, have, I'd hand him the action item that had to be cleared by everybody, and I would then take it down to the commandant of Marine Corps because that's what my job required. And I'd hand it to him, and General Wilson would look at me and say, "Brother North," because he was from Mississippi, Medal of Honor recipient. Brother North, what's Grinnell's have to say about this? And I, I just said, "Well, sir, he's initialled it right here. He, he approves." And so it. In 1977, after two years of this, he reaches over the partition and said, "I've just been selected to take over Third Battalion, Eighth Marines, and I want you to come with me as my operations officer." Took me about four nanoseconds to say, "Yes, sir," because everybody knew John Grinnell's, graduate of West Point, top of his class, Harvard MBA, Rhodes Scholar, White House Fellow. Everybody knew John Grinnell's, in spite of reading the Bible on government time was gonna be a general someday. And that's what went through my head. Okay. It was blind ambition. Okay. We went down, started training. <clears throat> 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit is what they call it today, but in our days it was a battalion landing team plus a marine expeditionary force headquarters. Uh 24th Mu was, and that was our designation, Mao in those days, Mu was today, uh rescued Scott O'Grady. Wow. It was our sister battalion from the 8th Marines that got blown up in Beirut. We just celebrated the anniversary, 23rd of October. Another bad day, right? They relieved us out in the mud. Those were the kinds of things that we did. We lost 11 Marines in an accident out there when an LVT sank unexpectedly. Navy Corpsman received the the Navy Marine Corps life-saving medal. Uh, John Grinnells was the kind of model of a servant leader. Servant leaders can't can't lead from behind. They have to lead from the front. They have to set the example. You have to live what you expect others to do. As you know and I know, you cannot lead from behind. You cannot ask others to do that which you cannot or will not do yourself. And those are the most important lessons I learned as a Marine, okay? And I saw it in him. And on top of that, he slapped me in the chest with a copy of the good book and said, read this on the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Already he'd already knelt down next to me when I got hurt, jumping off the side of an LBT, show off, right? And he said to me, Then, you've got to come to know your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. As we're getting aboard the ships, it's oh dark 30 in the morning. There's five amphibious ships all lined up at Moorhead City, and we're loading the Marines. It's the privilege of the operations officer to do an about face. And you said, he said, embark the troops, about face, embark your units. And they get aboard each of the amphibs. You know what it's like. And so, and there's you know four in the morning. Marines never go anywhere in daylight for crying out loud. <laughs> and and all the all the wives and kids and sweethearts and hookers, <laughs> or whatever, are outside the chain link fence, all crying. You know, there they go. And in the process of following John Grindle's and and doing what he told me, I started at Genesis. I I'd, I'd grown up going to church, but I'd never read the Bible from cover to cover. It's the only book I've ever read. Even your books, I'm not read. <laughs> I've got two of your books, as you know. And, and Thank I, you. i got questions about you. how much of that's real life. Yeah. So anyway, I, I don't, I, don't go there. Now. So at the end of the day, I get to Matthew's Gospel. I've got, I almost quit at Leviticus, got to Matthew's Gospel, which is the first of the New Testament. In the eighth chapter, verses 5 through 13, I think it is, there's a description of something I can get. It's about a centurion who is... And one of the books we had to read at the Naval Academy was, I guess we all had to read it, I did, was Josephus, the, the history of the Jewish wars, right? And so I knew what a Roman soldier, a centurion, I mean, means he's, he's the ca- commander of a 100 Russian, excuse me, Romans, Roman soldiers. Most of them are mercenaries anyway, but or from conquered lands yeah. anyway. And he's got a sick servant at home. And he comes down to Mount, I've been to Capernaum. More times I can count, and he comes down the mountain and he comes to Jesus, who's sitting there in front of the synagogue, which the archaeologists have that now said that's where he was. And so, and he says, "I've got a sick servant. Would you heal him?" And Jesus says, "Yeah, let's let's go." And he says, "I'm not worthy. You should come into my house. All you have to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. I'm a person of authority. I could I could tell someone to come and they come. I can tell someone to go and they go. I know what authority is." You're a person of authority. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. And Jesus says, go on home. In Luke's, in one of the translations of Luke's gospel, same story, he calls it a slave. But no matter what, it's a subordinate. And so Josephus says, and he describes the crucifixion of Christ the following way. If if you're a traitor, if if you're a seditionist, if you're practicing treason, then you will be executed. And of course, the list of the names of the way in which you execute people includes crucifixion. And if you consort with someone who does that, you are subject to the same punishment. So what's happened? So the Rome, and by the way, secret police of the day were keeping books on who Jesus was talking to, Mm. right? Because they eventually hunt all of them down. If you look at that, you realize this Roman soldier, for the benefit of of at least a subordinate, if not a servant or a slave, has just put himself at risk, of great risk. John Grinnell's did the same thing with me. John Grinnell's told me, and you, look at you and I know what it's like in the service today. Even back then, you still you cannot proselytize from as a senior to a subordinate. The sergeant can tell the lieutenant, you better come to know the Lord, but the lieutenant can't tell the sergeant that. So here's a battalion commander who's told his operations officer that. And he's given witness to how. A servant leader lives. Okay. I, I'm, I'm a big believer. Uh, I think that this is not in the book really necessarily as strongly as it should be. Those of us who have served learn better when we're, t- we're not when we're t- told what to do, but we're shown how to do it. So, for example, you and I both had people we admired that we followed. Okay. The, the good leaders like John Grinnells, you've had them. Those are the kinds of people who show you how they expect you to behave. And that's really important stuff. To me, that's how I teach my grandchildren. John Grinnells had shown me how a Christian man, a believer, and a leader lives. And so I, I, I realized read, reading about that Roman centurion, that changed my life forever. Wow. Right? Because now I, oh, I get it. I figured out what John Grinnells has been talking about all along. Yeah. And, and, of course, Jesus is tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for treason. Uh, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer is, you have said it, which is true. But the Romans only have one king for the Jews, and his name is Caesar, right? And so that's, that's, that's the crime that he committed. That's what he was sentenced to death for, and that's why he was tortured to death. And that changed my life forever. Wow. So now I can say to somebody, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm, I know where I'm going. I know why I'm going. I just don't know when.
0: Yeah. And it does come across in in the book, the impact that he had on your life. Um, John Gretel. Still does. Yeah. Still does. Yeah, exactly. Dear, dear friend. And, and not, not too long thereafter, your life takes another turn and uh you enter a new battle space and uh you talk about one of the reasons that you're selected for the nsc for the national security council um was because of a paper you wrote at war college and i love this because it's something that i've thought about many times uh and you argue that there is still a place for the battleship in modern warfare and i love that that becomes one of the reasons that they pick you for this for this job And uh, it's something I've thought about before, too, especially as we get more technologically advanced. Well, there's still this base layer. It's kind of like these these uh, these tactics, techniques and procedures that build the foundation of everything else. If you pack park a battleship off somebody's coast, uh, someone can't send a little virus in there. So I think it's becoming more important, actually, today uh, to have some of the technology that's not so reliant and connected to satellites and the web and all these other things for a variety of reasons. But, but I love that you you have that in there because I've thought that from a very early age. But point being, you step into this, this new job. And while you're doing that, I'm in uh, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade eighth grade. I know where I'm going. I know I'm going to the SEAL teams. I know the battles that I'm going to fight are going to have some connection to terrorism. Um, the paper comes to our house, Newsweek, Time Magazine. I'm seeing AWA, TWA 847. I'm seeing Achille Laurel. I'm seeing all these things uh, in the newspaper and in, and in Time and Newsweek. And you're dealing with them in, in real life. And you're learning and you're adapting. And some of the things that, that happened during your time on, that, uh, on the, the National Security Council, General Dozier kidnapped by the Red Brigades in Italy. We have the bombing, the Beirut bombing in 19, April of 1983. We have the that's the embassy bombing. Then we have the uh, barracks bombing, the Marine barracks bombing in October of 83. Uh, then we have an embassy in Kuwait that's bombed in December of the same year. Bill Buckley is kidnapped in uh, March of 1984. Uh, the U.S. MBA, embassy annex is bombed in September of 84 in Beirut. Journalist Terry Anderson, who was on – who was talked about quite a bit in the 80s is uh, kidnapped in March of 1985. TWA 847, June 85. Killy Laurel, October 85. Roman Vienna Airport attacks, December 85. West German disco bombing, April 4th, 86. Uh, during that time, we have Grenada. We retaliate uh, by dropping bombs on Libya on a, April 14th, 1986. That's your time on the. That, that's a lot going on, uh, and a and a shift for. strategic level thinkers for our military how to deal with this new and emerging threat of terrorism and your job becomes focused on that um, and the growing threat of islamic terrorist groups and you write up three national security decision directives that are directly related to terrorism during this time and one of those is in dealing with it preemptively and that's something new i mean we think about that today of course quite a bit uh post september 11th but back in the early 80s it's what people with common sense would think might make sense to at least discuss, but it's new uh, to the administration and to military thinking. And you're the one who, who writes that up. What was it like to, to step into this job at a time when Cold War is raging, but there's this Islamic, essentially global insurgency, uh, terrorist threat that's growing? What, what were those years like?
1: Well, I uh, didn't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Did a lot of travel. Uh, entirely different than the kinds of work that you and I would experience in the field, Uh, but it was rewarding in that some of the things that I recommended we actually did, and we did right, and and, uh, aren't even controversial today. I mean, the idea of a preemptive strike was, was foreign thinking at the time, and the ability to go get somebody out of harm's way. We didn't have the capabilities to do it, and we had some terrible experiences Places like Vietnam and and the, the desert out in Iran, uh, and so all of those all of those initiatives required the the ty- types of training that became necessary, the types of equipment that were developed, and a president willing to do it. And I was blessed to work for the, in my humble opinion, the greatest president of my lifetime. And I was born when Roosevelt was not Teddy, but FDR <laughs> was president, and so I had the great blessing of of being with him a great deal. He, he recognized some of the letters that he wrote to me are in the back of that mm-hmm. book, not all of them. He wrote some very powerful moving things that I just didn't think were appropriate for anybody but my kids yeah. and Betsy. And so I had this wonderful experience of working in the administration of a president who was literally changing the world. And he was. I mean, when I got to the White House, there were over 50,000 nuclear weapons around the world. When I By the time that I'd been out of the White House... Two years by 1988, we we're down. The numbers were dropping to less than 25,000, wow. making my my children's lives and now their children's lives much safer, because the opportunities for bad things to do. At the same time, the, the old KGB. Look at Red Army faction, Peter meinhof gang, uh, uh, Red Brigades. All of those were KGB sponsored, KGB run terror organizations. When the Soviet empire collapsed in 1989, 1990, they disappeared. Mm. They're gone. You know, the very first hostage I had to deal with was general Dozier. And we didn't have, for example, rewards for justice at the time. There no money set aside for it. And I think part of the story is in the book. Uh, I got called up to the oval office and, you know, Casey was there, Bill Clark, my national security advisor, boss was there. and am uh, 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 and several other people in, in the room. Vice President was there. Ed Meese was there. And we, I need some ideas on how we get this army. Because the word ha- hostage was something Ronald Reagan hated. Because for 444 days, his predecessor, had dealt with 56 Americans being held hostage in, in Tehran. And, and a disastrous end to that thing. Anyway, everybody kind of looks over at the major. I was still a major in the Marine Corps. I hadn't been promoted yet. And I said, well, I, I think what we ought to do is we ought to post on, on every mailbox in Naples and in Rome and Genoa pictures of General Dozier with an expression in two or three different languages, million-dollar reward for the safe return of General James Dozier for information leading to the safe... Yeah, i got to make sure I did. stay within the law because we're not off- offering ransom. or offering to pay uh-huh. for information that leads to the safe recovery. Sure, as a Dickens... Somebody says, well, where, you, where do you plan on getting the money, Major? And I said, well, sir, I, I got a good friend in Texas. He convinced me to stay in the Marine Corps back in 1973. And I think maybe what I'll do is just call him up and ask him if he's got a spare million that we can use.
0: Well, you, you let me
1: know. And, of course, he agreed. And so a million dollars, by the way, fits in $100 bills, fits perfectly inside one of those black, Government, <laughs> remember the kind this handcuff on it, right? right? And, I mean, and I didn't have the handcuff on it, but, it, but that's what it's for. Sure. I mean, it's to carry very sensitive stuff. Anyway, so I flew over. We posted the, reward, the notice rewards about a week later. Uh, and Carl Steiner had taken JSOC mm-hmm. over there, which included at the time, as you know, SEALs and Delta Boys. Uh, and sure enough, the uh, word comes out we've got we've got a guy who's called the 800 it's not 800 remember, but it's the, the number that was being monitored by NSA and everybody else and so Steiner's boys went to make, meet with the boy the young fellow that had offered the information checked it out Dozier's there kicked the door down and the rest of the story is he comes home and I bring him back into the Oval Office and he says I, I'd just love to know he's Major North wouldn't tell me how you did this sir but would you tell me Mr. President "Well." And he's well, well, someday the story will come out. So about a month later, I get a call from Ross Perot saying, you know, I, for just for my own just for my own diary, my my own journal, I'd like to know the name of the guy that got my money. And I said, Well, fair enough. Get on the red phone, call the station chief. And the station chief says, "Got the money? I've got the damn money." He says, "I'll tell you why. That the Red Brigades found out that this guy was the was the uh, not the Red Brigades. He was a member of the Red Brigades. That this guy was the trigger man who murdered Aldo Moro, the prime minister. And they're not about to have the Carbonary give this guy a million bucks to start a pizzeria in Brooklyn. <laughs> so I have to go back in and tell the boss. And so the same crowd is there that had been there when this whole thing started. And and so I." I said, Mr. President, I, I was asked to get the name, and here's what happened. And the money is still there. And he, I'll never know if he was joking or not. He looks at Ed Meese and says, "Well, Ed, can we keep it?" <laughs> we did. Went <it. laughs> back and got it, brought it back, and uh, and Mr. Pro had gotten a very nice note that didn't mention what it was, but what a great patriot he was, and thank you for helping our country, and sign Ronald Reagan. Oh. So he still got the letter and he got his money back. That's incredible. It was in un- sense that we hadn't invested. Uh. But at the time, we we, we saw what was happening with, with those who were being sponsored by the KGB. And we could do wire diagrams of every terror organization and on view graphs. We didn't have PowerPoints. And you'd, you'd put them up on the screen in the sit room and, and here's the wire diagram. Here's Abu Nidal. His organization is called Islamic Jihad. And it's one of these new terror organizations, it's Islamic terror. We missed the forest for the trees. I I had no idea at the time, even though I could do the wire diagrams and I worked very closely with the guys at the agency. And as you know, it was during that time that the Counterterrorism Center was established in 1985. And those changes within the Bureau were largely effective, but we were unable to predict Another terror event like we could with the Red Brigades, because they would always pick May 1st or they yeah. would pick something connected with a, a, if you will, a Russian or Soviet holiday or a communist holiday or a communist celebration of some kind. In this case, we didn't have scholars who knew what, you know, Islamic. Yeah. In fact, at the time, I don't think anybody realized the difference between Shia and Sunni. Yeah. All things that you guys learned as you were getting ready to go to war, and that's the, the war you were in, right? And so those changes came about very slowly. It became very effective in terms of the equipment, the training, the leadership, and the willingness to exploit the opportunities for preemptive action, which is what you guys were doing primarily in Vermont yeah. at the times that you and I were out there together. It's a- so I, I look at those and say, yeah, we've matured a lot. Has it made a difference? Well, if you look at the disaster of what happens in Afghanistan over the course of a 20-year war. And I covered 17 years in that war, right? Well, in not just that theater. I mean, I went to Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. Somalia, uh, uh, the Philippines, all for Fox, yeah. who, as I said, paid me a lot more to get <laughs> shot at than the Marine Corps had. And I loved doing it because I got the opportunity to spend time with guys like you and your colleagues and my MARSOC guys and my regular Marine units and was blessed by that opportunity to keep company with heroes. And the reason I stopped doing it is. I just did not because of the injury. When the new government issued me, I did not want someone else to get hurt trying to make sure I wouldn't get hurt yeah. or killed. And so I never carried a weapon. When, there were two occasions in 17 years when I needed one, and there were a lot laying around. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, in uh, some of those occasions, I, I, my wife has found out about Uh-oh. Not from me, but from others. <laughs> Better from others
0: though. Well, yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that either. Maybe it's better from you. Probably better from others. But that's a good run. Seventeen years of of continuing to do that. Yeah. You did some amazing reporting. Yeah. Um, of course, we're following along there. And and uh, Ross Perot, what an amazing man. He, uh, you know, he, he yeah. pops up here and there all throughout. Uh, you know, this this time frame, and uh, he's the reason we have a diagnosis for our son with with special needs. Someone told yep. him our family's story, and he called me out of the blue. Uh, I was still in the military, yep. and he sounded exactly exactly like your your impersonation of him. I look at like Dana Carvey's impersonation of him on on Saturday Night Live. And uh, he calls me out of the blue and tells yeah. me he's going to send the jet out the G five fifty and fly our son out to uh, to Texas and figure out uh, yep. what's going on. And sure enough, uh, about a month later, they send the jet and uh, we get on and fly out there. And. He's the reason that we have a, a diagnosis for our, uh, for our son today. So, and I got to meet him on book tour again. So we met him then and he gave mm-hmm. us the the full on tour of his museum and taught, walked us through his life. And we sat there and we had uh, ice cream in the cafeteria there when it was still on the Dell campus. And then during my first book tour, uh, they'd moved from the Dell campus to, um, to where they moved in, in Dallas there. And I got to go see him again. And he still had a picture of our son on his desk. Yeah. I mean,
1: this is a great American guy there's no doubt yeah. about it
0: incredible and uh so Achille laurel that was a, a a fairly formative event uh for you that you were deeply involved you're involved in all these things and it's it's incredible that you slept at all but uh the Achilles laurel heart hijacking um you know really kind of hijacked the world almost uh, everyone was glued to their television yeah. uh screens we didn't know what was going to happen and you're in the in the middle of it um and you just walk was it a call that you received that that you went into to, to start dealing with that situation?
1: Well, I uh, and I, I, I mean, it's in the one, wonderful ways of Washington, as a, as a mere lieutenant colonel, I chaired what was called the Terrorist Incident Working Group. And it had on it deputy director of the FBI. It had deputy attorney general. It had a three-star admiral and a three-star general. It had an assistant secretary of defense. It had the number two guy and often the number one guy at the CIA, Bill Casey. And I looked at those, uh, and I'm chairman of the committee. I mean, I've got this wonderful parchment somewhere, probably in a packing crate or a footlocker somewhere. That this lovely piece of paper says, deputy assistant to the president of the United States for military, uh, political military affairs, National Security Council staff. And I tried to get out of that assignment. I, tried, I told John Lehman, secretary of the Navy, I told the commandant of the Marine Corps, I didn't want to go. I, I wanted to go back and be a Marine. I'm a really good Marine infantry officer. I want to take command of a Marine battalion and go out and far edge of the empire in harm's way, if you can make it. And I was good at it. And that's what I wanted to do. turns out, didn't get to do that. So Achille Laurel was, was one of the major events. We're now seeing a lot more of that radical Islamic terror that was going on. Uh, we, by the time that the word came, I think it was middle of the night, I get a phone call from the set room. We had a secure phone at the house at the time. We had another one, in my car. I mean, anyway I get called in and so the president uh, basically said I want to get him back and as you know we sent very, very special units from your service and and from and Carl Steiner went back out to in fact set up the command post in uh, Sicily Sigonella. and uh, we were tracking him and I had some very good relationships with the Israelis and I got a We we thought that they had gotten off the ship and were gone. And we knew that Mubarak had lied to the president on the phone call. And we knew that they were still somewhere in in Egypt. That's all we knew. And long story short, I get a call from Uri Subhoney, who was then the the Israeli military attaché at the embassy with whom I worked very closely. Uh, if, If you want to talk to people with cojones, I got to deal with people with cojones on that side. He calls me up and he said, jot this phone number down. This is the tail number of the airplane that they're on, and they're on their way to Tunis. And so the USS Saratoga was out in the med, and I get on the phone to Admiral Art Moreau. And at the end of the day, the airplane, they thump with F-14s. You, you fly along with a, another airplane underneath you. There's a, here's a DC-9 with the Egypt Air civilian markings on it. And you kick your afterburners in right over top of them and get their attention. And so it landed at Sigonella, thanks to the, some great intelligence work and, you know, tracking and communications equipment that we didn't even have when we started all this stuff. And they landed in, in uh, Sigonella. Four terrorists, three were on the ship. The leader of the terrorist organization, Abu Abbas, is there. He, he joined them in Egypt. He actually came out of Damascus at the time. And long and short of it, they, they jail three of them. they up give Abu Abbas because he's a big heavyweight in the PLO and other terrorist organizations. They give him a free pass, put him in a Yugoslav airline uniform and fly him to split Yugoslavia from from uh, Rome. and he gets away. And we see so the end of the story is the other three go to jail. Uh, they'd murdered Leon Klingoff for an American Jewish passenger, restricted to a, a wheelchair. They'd murdered him. Uh, and so we wanted him to extradite it here to the United States to serve, be tried for murder. And, and we also want to the Abbas. Eventually, those guys served long sentences, but today, two of them were freed. One of them died shortly thereafter. He made the mistake of committing another act of terror and died in the process. The other two I think of since dead because the Hezbollah has been decimated by the Israelis. At the end of the day, Abul Abbas becomes the head of what's called the Martyrs Fund. He was initially in Damascus, then he moved to Baghdad, and he was in Baghdad when we landed there in 2003. And I was up north at that point with the Fourth ID. The Marines had come and gone. I'd been there for several months at that point, covering the war for Fox, and I get a phone call, Iridium, uh, from the Marine Expeditionary Force Commander. Or maybe it was 4th ID. I guess it was 4th ID. Anyways, CG says, I'm sending my helicopter to pick you up. You need to ID a body for me. Whoa. And this is, you know, decades after. And so I fly down, and sure enough, it's a Abbas. No kidding. You know, we, we've been trying to get that guy for a long time. <laughs> sadly enough, sadly enough, he died of a heart attack. No bullet holes on him, and I'm looking at the body and yeah, and he had at the time he was controlling about fourteen million dollars worth fifty thousand dollars you know about this but your viewers may not they were offering fifty thousand dollars to the parents of any kid old enough to wear a body bomb and become a suicide bomber, okay? and they would give the parents the money as soon as the kid blew himself up. same kind of thing just happened, of course, with not just ISIS, but more likely uh, the Haqqani crowd in, in Afghanistan that killed 13 Marines and soldiers. Yeah. So uh, don't miss him at all. Imad Mugniya, who became the head mm-hmm. of the operations side of, uh, of uh, Hezbollah. Uh, tragically, he, he was at a reception in Damascus, Damascus as you probably uh-huh. know the story, but tragically enough, I mean, this is another guy who tried to kill my wife and kids. Uh, Abu Nidal tried, uh, actually sent terrorists to our house on 11 February 1987. Six terrorists from downtown. You know, all these guys were direct threats to me because I was on their hit list. And Abu Abbas died a, of a heart attack. Uh, Imad Mugniya from Hezbollah, he died when he put the key in his Mitsubishi parked in an embassy parking lot and it blew itself across four parking lots. I mean, you'd think that would hurt Mitsubishi you sales a little bit. Yeah and and so poor abu nidal who headed the islamic jihad cell that was right here in, in northern virginia uh, that poor guy died of six self-inflicted headshots <laughs> in baghdad so, <laughs> and you're still here and i'm still hey,
0: here there we go yeah oh, that's yeah <laughs> incredible yeah surprising mr b c surprised that uh, uh, survived that one uh and you are, you're keeping company with some interesting people during this time, both uh, professionally in the United States uh, national security apparatus, and then the people you have to liaise with. What are your memories, if I'm going to butcher the name, Manchur Gorba, the arms dealer? I mean, this guy's right out of a spy thriller. I mean, what are your memories of him? He's one of the most
1: duplicitous human beings on the planet Earth. And he had to deal with them because actually the Israelis brought him to us as we started. Look, the, the, the president took a lot of criticism for this. Uh, it, we were barred by the the legislation. It was in the defense of uh, uh, what we now call na- national national security. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, it's 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 how the the, the Pentagon's going to spend their yep. money. And there was a restriction in there called the Boland Amendment. The Boland Amendment said something like. No funds made available by this act may be used for the purposes or, or which would have the effect of providing direct or indirect support for military, paramilitary activities against the uh, Sandinista government in Nicaragua. I think that's pretty close to it. There are four different versions of that. <laughs> anyway, uh, it meant that we couldn't use government money. And because the Israelis were trying to get some of their people back out and, and we were being assured, turns out incorrectly, I think, Uh, that there were moderates within the regime in Tehran, among the Ayatollahs, that we could help them in what had been at that point a very long war going on between Iran and Iraq. And so I was given the mission of, okay, delivering stuff to them that they think is really going to be working and get Bill Buckley back. Okay, and Bill Buckley was, of course, at the time being tortured to death. And at the end of the day, we ended up uh, making three shipments of tow, 500 tows apiece, from the Israeli stockpiles, which we replaced from the United States with a newer, moder- more modern version. And it turns out, they, the tow missiles that the Iranians got did not work as, as advertised. And on one occasion, meeting with them not the one in Tehran, not the meeting in Tehran, but the meeting in Frankfurt, I'm with the CIA clandestine services officer who speaks fluent uh Farsi and they asked me about the problem I said well and I did not know I mean I knew that they'd been doctored don't get me wrong I did not know what to say and I said you know what you' you're using these in the fall peninsula and it's over water and that thin gold <laughs> wire that spools out at the back end of it if it gets wet it won't work right go,
0: oh, oh. <laughs> quick
1: thinking which of course is it was quick thinking, but of course, they eventually <laughs> learned that's not true either. But uh, fortunately, none of, those, none of those weapons actually worked. And at the end of the day, we got three hostages back. We'd never got Buckley, Buckley Spidey back until yeah. uh, years later. The bottom line of it was the money we used from that those sales and other money we collected overseas were also used to provide weapons for the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. Uh, the most important of which turned out to be Chinese-made surface-to-air missiles, pads, SA-7 lookalikes from Communist China, which were purchased with money we got from Taiwan.
0: I mean, to be in the middle of all that is just so fascinating. Um, And yeah, I I love going back, and it's been a a while since I had uh, had read Under Fire, Um, but it's it's so fascinating that we describe all these characters and how all this came about and your personal experience with it, your perspective. Um, and what are your memories of, uh, working with William Casey? What was he, uh, cause he, his, his background going back to OSS and World War II and all these things. And then, right. and then you're working directly with him. Um, what was he, uh, what was he like?
1: He would, uh, he would, I don't have a tie on, but I can't, so I can't emulate it perfectly. He would sit always next to the president in the sit room, right next to him. And the president's left ear uh, was better hearing. So he would always sit to the president's immediate left, president's at the end of the table. I'm a backbencher and, and I have to do briefings and things like that, but, you know, you know talk about so. And Casey would, somebody was meandering about on some subject, and Casey would lean over and and just whisper in the president's ear. And that would drive people like George Schultz and <laughs> Cap Weinberger absolutely nuts, right? Because they couldn't hear what Casey and the president would. Oh.
0: That's so great.
1: And of course, I have no idea what Casey was actually saying to him. But <laughs> it, was, it was, I remember there was a moment we're flying down to somewhere. I flew a lot of times with him. I think we were going down to Central America. It might've been the handoff in March of 84 when the CIA was barred from doing anything else. And they introduced me as the as William Good, yep. passport William Good. I had an Irish passport that said John Clancy, same picture. I
0: saw the John Clancy What's one for Tehran.
1: Oh yeah, you got it. And so uh, the, Casey's reading a book, and I can see him speed reading through it. And the book was Modern Times, the book that, according to some people, put Margaret, Margaret Thatcher its prime minister. And so he's he's done with the book. He's I mean, I've watched him reading. He's just like this, fast as it can be. I mean, I took the Wood speed reading course 15 right. years ago. I, I can still do a little of it. But anyway, he, he looks back at the seat, tosses the book at me says, read this. <laughs> took me weeks. Week yeah, to yeah, read it's it, serious. That's so a serious yeah, book. But it was, it was a great primer on what conservative politics were really all about. It's a fascinating man, a great intellect. I got to visit him up at home, up his home up in Long Island. Uh, went to his wake, uh, did not go to the funeral because at the time we were, Mr. Claridge and I were pretty much persona non grata. But uh, yeah, an incredible human being and a great privilege to watch, particularly Bill Clark, Bill Casey, Ed Meese, who knew Ronald Reagan from back in California, mm-hmm. right? And they and they were part of a, that, that some presidents don't, I don't think this president's got a lot of friends around him. I don't think his predecessor, who you and I both know well, I don't think Mr. Trump had people who had the kinds of experience that he trusted. Right. And so I, I look at the, at the model for the presidency. And, and one of the things that made Ronald Reagan so great was that he had people around him. He trusted. And he could say, well, Pat, what do you think of that? And he, and he'd hear, you'd get different perspectives. Uh, Presidents of the United States have awesome authority. And a lot of it has has, has evolved over the course of years. One of the the scary things about our current existence is that there does not appear to be a cohesive thread as to where we're going. Ronald Reagan always had one. We used to joke about the fact that if you were in the Department of Public Works and you could identify something you were doing that was going to be hurtful to the Soviet Union, Bunch of approved. <laughs> That's the way it was. I mean, it, it and it was not entirely a joke. I mean, everything from the Department of Education to, you know, the the institution of of logistics in the military to the evolution of things like the Agency for International Development, all had a component that says, "My goal is to bring down the evil empire." Wow. And of course, by 1986, you know, at Reykjavik, the press. Even even Secretary Schultz wrote it off as a terrible loss. Wow. It wasn't. It was an enormous victory wow. because the Soviets tried to compete with us and they couldn't. And Reagan knew that Reagan had guys that would brief. And I, I used to go to more of these things. Now. On Saturdays, he would meet with the president's foreign intelligence advisory board. The PIFIAC. I think it's called something different now, but it's outside advisors. At one point, Edward Bennett Williams, the chairman of that committee, was my lawyer. Right. He brought Brendan Sullivan in, the guy that sat next to me during that long séance in the summer <laughs> of '87, and and those were people he trusted. Reagan trusted these kinds of people. Ed Williams is a Democrat. Lane Kirkland, head kind of the FLCIO, Democrat. They were on the, these important committees like the the National Bipartisan Commission on Central America, and it traveled all over the place. I'm just, I, it was a remarkable experience for a young guy, who's. You know, meanwhile, somehow spent enough time at home to get (laughs) now eighteen grandkids.
0: Uh, It's incredible. And uh, William Casey, of course, director of the CIA, before you go to Tehran, and and there hadn't been too many Americans going to Tehran since 1979. um, He gives you something. He gives you is it cyanide pills or whatever he whatever he gives you.
1: I don't know what they were, but he told me here's
0: six of them. So he hands you those. That's pretty serious. And uh, I think you're closing on a house at the time and Betsy's wondering where you're going. You can't say, of course, you're traveling under this Clancy uh, uh, passport and the the state department, I think is throwing a, throwing a fit for uh, about that sort of a thing. And then you guys go to Iran.
1: Yeah. Um, What a trip. Bud McFarlane, former national security advisor, headed the mission. Uh, I look at at those times and say, uh, Aminir, my counterpart in the Israeli uh, counterterrorism counterpart, he went with us. That's that's real nerve, to yeah. say the least. He, he, by the way, was eventually murdered by, after the book came out, uh, he was murdered in Mexico by Hezbollah. Oh, no. I didn't know. Uh, and, and, and looking back at it, nowadays, the NSC would never do something like this again. I, I don't think there will ever be hearings like we had in the summer of 87 either. Congress will never do that again. They probably should for the fiasco that they just got out of Afghanistan. But uh, the end result of all of that was to see and persevere through success and failure. Uh, We did get three Americans out. The the price politically was enormous for the president. uh, But he survived it, and so did I. And at the end of the day, uh, sometimes you need to take a chance. We all knew it was high risk. Everybody, and Admiral Pointexter and Bud McFarlane and Bill Clark, all knew it was very high risk politically. Uh, I did not express to Betsy at the time the kinds of... I remember one time I, I made so many trips back and forth across the pond, I was actually traveling on the Concord several oh, wow. times, just so that you could take off at 6 p.m. out of Dulles Airport, right outside where I am, and be back for the staff meeting in the morning. Back at, the following wow. day, and, and the rest of the staff, other than the people that authorized my trip, will never know. And I look at the, I. I remember coming back from one of the trips and I had, we had a secure phone. We had a safe in our bedroom it had a secure phone in it. We'd take that out every night when I was home. And in fact, she put it on, said, on your side of the bed. I don't want that thing waking me up. And we still had you know, little tiny kids. And I left on my dresser in our bedroom the three passports the real Oliver North passport, John Clancy passport from Ireland, and the the uh, blue American passport for Wayne Paul Good, And I knew, I had already asked and it was approved. Everybody now knows what FISA is, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right? I had gotten a FISA order for me, every phone I had. Okay. Thank God, because I probably would still be in Leavenworth. I mean, that's, that's what, that's the reason why no one could ever accuse me of not doing what I was told to do. Wow. In fact, the actual words were Oliver North did everything he was told to do and everything he did. Every, Oliver North, every, everything Oliver North did, he was told to do, and everything he was told to do, he did. That was it. Wow. That was John Poindexter. And there was no way anybody could deny it because I recorded every phone conversation, 400,000 pages of transcripts." Wow. So that's what the special persecutor had to go through. Oh. But it everything I was I did, I was I was approved. And so she calls up and I, I knew that the phones were being monitored. And she calls me up in my office and phone hall, my secretary, puts her through. And she said, I just found three passports on your dresser. Who are you? Wow. And I said, honey, I'll tell you about it when I get home. Don't say anything to anybody. Why can't I say anything to anybody? I hung up the phone, got in the car, and raced back out to Great Falls because that's where we were living by then. And I had to start explaining what's going on. And, and as everybody knows from that back in that era, my secretary was uh, the daughter of the secretary to the National Security Advisor. My original secretary had a nervous breakdown because trying to keep three sets of books and all the accounting for all the money. You know, I. I I had to give one of the contra heads ten thousand bucks in cash every month. Yeah, yeah, and he got it. And we did dead drops for that kind of stuff. I, I and I'm an infantryman. <laughs> one point, one point. Casey says to me, "I've got. Well, I, I was looking for mine. I've got one around here somewhere. But I've got a reporter's notebook, right? One of those long, narrow ones, a spiral at the top. So I've got it in my pocket. And Casey's rattling off. I want you to open a bank account here and <laughs> put the following numbers. Down. And I'm. I, I reach in my pocket, I pull out the note. He says, "What are you doing? I said I'm making notes. He said, "If you need to make notes, you don't belong in this business." I, said, I know I don't belong. <laughs> I've been in this trying business. to tell everyone. I'm an infantry officer. <laughs> damn it! So they sent me to a week of training down, a weekend, a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the farm oh, down kid. outside of Williams. They don't teach you that stuff oh, in yeah. the
0: basic school. Yeah. That's not. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, no was no, down at Camp no Yeah, Yeah, it was. It was great. I mean,
1: that's, it's yeah.
0: incredible, and what what people what often gets gets lost, I think, these days is that people forget why Americans were being taken in Beirut. In Lebanon in the Middle yeah. East and what's so interesting about it it's for the same reasons that Osama bin Laden attacked the United States in that he thought yeah. it would push us out of the Middle East of course it did yeah. the exact opposite yeah. then he adapted his rhetoric to say that was my plan the whole time of course and, and all that but uh but it's interesting you go back to all those years earlier and that was the same reason that these Americans were being grabbed off the street um yeah. and we kind of we kind of lost a little bit of that in, in everything that that it ensued but um yeah. Uh, I think about uh, the hearings, I think about that quite quite frequently because they came at such a formative time in my life. And I watched them, I videotaped them on Betamax. Um, we hadn't switched over to VHS yet in my, in my household. Um, yeah. And uh, I can only imagine today, if that was to happen, how much in the era of social media and how politicians and these tech giants know how much... Division can help their side and the tech giant side as far as making money and mining data from us for profit and then politician side to figure out how to uh, rally rally the troops to their cause and continue to further divide us. But I can only imagine if you went through today what you went through back then in the era of social media, just what that, how, how confusing that would be for everyone and how, how different it would be today and and one thing that's so fascinating and uh you mentioned it in the, in the book also is uh that, well there are two things you didn't know whether you should wear your uniform or not and i forget who who you talked to and maybe it was the commandant of the marine corps mm-hmm. but he said i when i testify before congress i wear my uniform you wear yours and uh actually, something like that actually the
1: way, what i what happened is i didn't learn about this until probably five years ago is Brendan Sullivan called him up. These are two Irish, (laughs) ex-Kelly Commandant of the Marine Corps, and Brendan Sullivan, right? So Sullivan, my lawyer, calls the Commandant up, and I was working, my office was right down the hall from the Commandants. Mm -hmm. I left the White House on the 26th, I think it was 23rd of uh, November, 86. I went right in the second deck of the uh, Marine headquarters and the Commandant Marine Corps said, you're working for me, you're keeping your clearances, thank God. and so. And at it, and TSSCI clearances are very high level, and so Sullivan calls up and he says, "North is not going to wear a uniform tomorrow to the hearings." Uh, do you think that's the right? Why? So he said, "I'll take care of it." So, unbeknownst to me, that phone call—I is, I get buzzed on my desk. Intercom, commandant, walk down the hall fifteen feet and walk into the aide. Stands up. The commandant wants to see you right now. So Kelly says, Night, "Tomorrow you testify. You're going to testify. So, um, what are you wearing?" I said, well, sir, I you not know, want to put the Marine Corps through all this. So I thought I'd wear civilian clothes. He said, well, now, Colonel, when I testify, I wear my uniform. I expect that all of my officers, when they testify before Congress, will wear their uniform. What are you wearing tomorrow? I said, sir, my uniform. <laughs> okay. Have a good day. And we did. I mean, that's uh, when Mike called. I did. And, and one of the reasons I actually retired from the Marine Corps, I retired the day I was indicted by the special prosecutor because I did not want the Marine Corps to have to go through. And those who watched the hearings realized the very first day of the hearings, Betsy was not behind me, and that's because I didn't want her and and our kid. I mean, first of all, we were in Great Falls, so it's a it's an hour long drive to get in there at the time. And at the bottom of it, we got two kids off in school and two kids still growing up, a six year old. And so our uh, five-year-old time, and so at the end of the day, she agreed to stay home. I got home that night, and she said, "I am going tomorrow." And I said, "Let me call Brendan," and Brendan said, "She wants to come, have her come." At the end, I mean, she okay. So we went to bed probably around one o'clock in the morning. At the end of the first day, I'd I'd gotten four phone calls that: a phone call from the commandant, a phone call from Richard Nixon. I'd gotten to know on the National Bipartisan Commission for Central America a phone call from Billy Graham and a phone call from Ronald Reagan that first night. And so, you want to come? You come. All very encouraging. I asked Billy Graham, I said, How did you get my phone number? It's unlisted. He said, I did do what I always do. I just call the White House.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So great. And
1: so she came, and thank God she did because. At some point in the next day or two, or it went on over the span of nine days, but three or more days off for the Fourth of July holiday, because we still had to go testify upstairs in the Hipsy Space, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, on mm-hmm. stuff that was way too sensitive to even bring up in the closed hearings. And uh, at one point, Howell uh, Hefflin put up, on remember, we didn't have PowerPoint in those days, right? Put up on the screen the image of a check that I could not read. He said, nah, at exhibit number 444. He's a big hog-jowled senator from Alabama. He said, ah, I want you to know, I want to know, you made out to Lily's Lingerie. <laughs> Were you buying undies for your girlfriend phone, Holly? And thank God Betsy was behind me. She taps me on the shoulder and says, those are the leotards for our six-year-old daughter Dornan's ballet lessons. Tell him that. And I did. Wow. He never showed up at the hearings again. And I asked Brendan during the break for Chow, I guess at lunchtime. So why would why would someone do that? And thank God my wife was there. I mean, yeah. first of all, I don't have anything to commend me as a husband and father, but the word Semper Fidelis, right? Always faithful. That's it. Because I'm never around. She raised our four kids miraculously without me around. And now she's grandma to 18. And Sullivan's answer is very instructive. He said, they have to believe you did that. Because if they'd had the opportunity to have an affair with a beautiful secretary,
0: they'd have done it. Fair enough. Wow. Anyway. And I think they regretted very quickly putting you up there. Um because <laughs> no, you, 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 some polls right came out, and they'll never
1: do it again. Yeah, they will never do that again. And I mean, yeah. it, we ought, actually ought to have something yeah. like that—some kind of bipartisan commission on what happened with Absolutely. Afghanistan. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, and and one of the great things about Ronald Reagan is he had more assurance of the ultimate outcome of this thing than I did, and, and that most of his people around him—I mean, there were there were people who I thought were friends. Yeah who would come out and say absolutely horrible stuff, not knowing how it would come out. And the president was squarely with me. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I had some other people around him that weren't, like the chief of staff, God rest his soul. And Don, Don Regan was not a fan, also a former mm. Marine. And so, I, I mean, I look back on those experiences and say, you know what, you learn a lot about people when, when the, when the heat's oh, on, yeah. and Ronald Reagan was there oh, for wow. us. No doubt about it.
0: And, and you, it's funny how you say that Some people suddenly forgot that they were on trips with me to Central America where they're in photos uh, yeah. and uh, yeah. just conveniently well, forgot.
1: One of the, one of the yeah. One of the yeah. Well, I'm standing right yeah. beside yeah. him. But
0: what's interesting. So I was so young at the time that I couldn't really conceptualize what was going on. I forget if the tower commission report had come out yet or not. I, I, I got that. And of course it's very thick and I'm reading that as a you know, seventh grade or sixth, whatever that is. Um, and so I'm fairly, fairly young at the time, but I know when I'm watching you. I'm like, this is someone very special right here. And uh, and the rest of America thought that same thing because I think there's some polling that came out fairly soon after, maybe it was the first day, second day, whenever it was, that said, hey, uh, most of the American people uh, who have watched this are solidly on the side of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. And yeah. it's the way you handled yeah. yourself in those hearings that with such poise, such well, dignity, I- um, obviously the people around you that are, that are up there uh, asking these questions, they start infighting amongst themselves. And, and uh, it's just, I mean, you handle yourself with, with such poise. Uh, and I think, and you had got the respect of the country by handling yourself the way you did.
1: Um, I'll, I'll go back to those words that you just used a few minutes ago. It helps to know where you're going and why you're going there. And I, I, even when the trial was going on, it was it, you know, it was a five-year legal experience. And from the day of the indictment till the day that the so finally kicked back the second time from the Supreme Court and it went all went away. The judge banged the gavel and said, case dismissed with prejudice, and then it was over. And I never once doubted that the ultimate outcome was going to be fine. It just took a lot longer than I thought, it was very, very expensive. But you've got the best selling book right <laughs> back there. And it went to eight printings, I think, something like that. Um, and the American people, very, very generous. I mean, what, what, what we've done with Freedom Alliance is the direct consequence of the American people saying, this is a really good cause. We've got 580 some odd youngsters on college scholarships wow. right now whose dads, in most cases, there are a couple of women, but dads died in the line of duty, which is a much broader opportunity than simply the, the, the so-called uh, War on Terror GI Bill. Because there he has to be killed in combat. And we're saying, no, line of duty. And to get all you need to get the Freedom Land Scholarship is have a dad who was killed or permanently disabled in the line of duty or a parent and get into college and keep a B average. That's it. And and we're very, very well endowed. We do it very, very well. Sadly enough, I'll give you this one real quick before I got it wrong, but gunnery sergeant. Joshua Miles uh, was our operations chief. Josh Miles died last Monday, very unexpectedly. We had three miles every day. And that heart attack died. And so we were praying for his family. Uh, the funeral's going to be this weekend. or actually Friday. And, uh, and then they're going to put him in Arlington. Wow. And of course, as you and I know nowadays, that's going to be months from now because of all the backlog from COVID. But it wasn't COVID that got him. Wasn't wasn't these bad, bad people from a place called Fallujah yeah. where he served in the Marines. Ah. Gunnery Sergeant Joshua Miles, rest in peace, brother. Rest in peace.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm gonna let you go. I want to talk about this really quickly here, because I think this is so important for people to read this book right now. We didn't fight for socialism. Um and every chapter in here, I mean, I I is so important, and I, I I earmarked some things, but I I won't read them because I want people to to get this book and read it themselves. With the way you talk about cancel culture in here, the way you talk about all these different laws and regulations that are broad by design, um, possibly, uh, and to allow the federal government to pick and choose who they who they want to go after. But uh, all these tie-ins to history as well. To uh, to, to dictators over time who have espoused some of the same things that we're hearing from current members of the political class today. Um, and how you tie that all together is a powerful book that, uh, especially kids, especially those kids who are going to be yeah. voting soon, who are 15, 16, 17, 18, coming up on some of their first elections, they need to read this book.
1: Well, I appreciate your plugging. And by the way, you get it cheaper than even Amazon. Uh, If you go to olivernorth.com and click on the buy.
0: That's perfect uh, because I went to Amazon to get it first and it was sold out. (laughs) Everybody wanted it. It was sold out there. So yeah, yeah, olivernorth.com and they can follow you there. They can do all sorts of, I mean, this book, I I just, the the four D's of socialism that you talk about, the deceiving, distorting, dividing, destroying, I mean, you can see it. And once are. you educate yeah. someone about these these things, they can identify it um, from yeah. that political, quote-unquote, ruling class up there. And that's what's so, so important is to be able to identify it so that you can then take the right yeah. actions in yeah. your own life and when you walk into those uh, those voting the voting booth. But soft tyranny, why rejecting American exceptionalism, why socialists do that? There's just so yeah. much important information in there um that I that I hope everybody reads. And and before we go, what uh where did you get I guess where did you first internalize or conceptualize how important the Second Amendment is to this nation? These natural oh it
1: was when uh,
0: this natural yeah, right
1: yeah it was yeah very easy. Joe Foss, Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, America's number one ace, dear dear friend hunted with him from 1988 until he died uh New Year's Day 2001. And uh, Joe and I became very, very close friends. He's the one who opened my eyes to it, which is why I ended up becoming president of the NRA. He uh, he, and the and the kinds of people that that I grew up with, you know, I had the great blessing of growing up. I've, I, my, my dad was the first hero I ever knew. And all of those guys were hunters and people who possessed firearms, who taught my brothers and me the safe way of handling. I now get to do that with my grandchild on top, one last quick story because then I do have to run. But uh, the 14th birthday, it's not 10th. If I put 10th in the book, it's wrong. But I, I'm I give a, a present to the, started out with just the boys, okay? Now they all know what to expect because they've seen it happen. But and we have 28 birthdays in this family, and and Betsy's established no, we're gonna have their own birthday. Okay, got it, <laughs> 28. It's two a month for yeah, so anyway. They they get a box. It's a fairly long box. And it's about that thick. And on it is a note from me saying, happy birthday, John, or Jack, or Tom, Dick, Harry. And I do know all their names. And I know which I sometimes mess up siblings. with. (laughs) (laughs) So, dear John, happy, happy birthday birthday. Always happy birthday. If you learn to use everything in this box, you'll never go hungry. You'll never be lost. And you need fear nothing. And I will show you how. I'll talk about it. Show you. Remember, we talked about showing you. Okay. Open the box. There's a copy of the Holy Bible. In fact, it's a Marine Bible. And in it is a little note. Go to Psalm 31 because there just happened to be, I'm sorry, Proverbs 31. There just happened to be 31 Proverbs in seven months of the year of 31 days. So today being the what? Whatever the date is today. And you say, okay, go a month later, come back, give me a book report. Just read one a day. And it's Solomon's wisdom, particularly for the young man. But it still works for women too. Some and 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 third Proverbs 31 is all about my wife. Right. And so you come back and give me a book report, then I'll take you out. The next thing they find down in the in the box is a Lenzatic company, a compass, and the map sheet from the Appalachian Trail, which is the backyard of where we live out in the Shenandoah Valley. Right. And it just happens that some of the train features have an ammo can welded to a fence post, right? And there's a number inside it. You know, and that, so I'll, I'll show them how to use the Lanzetta compass, how to take an azimuth, how to get from A to B to C to D. And because uh, someday the GPS won't uh-huh. be there. Bad guys can shut it off today if they do it. Uh, they could they could today. All right. And finally, they get down to the third layer. And there is a Remington 870 20-gauge shotgun, which is perfect for a kid. And I'll teach you. I'll show you how to take it apart, put it back together so you can do it blindfolded. Number two, I'll show you how to clean it. And number three, I'll show you how to shoot it safely, and then I'll take you out hunting with me and we'll go out after some birds. And so that has worked countless times now. And I'm still, I was up in, in Utica, New York here a couple of weeks ago. And I said, if you know, Remington is slowly but surely going away. I said, if anybody knows where there's any 870s, and I've got a lot of emails. So still, still working on okay. it, as you and I, probably a fairly good collection of firearms. Yeah. And, Yeah. And the right of the American people to keep them and have the government not try to, A, confiscate them, B, buy them back, D, in any way strip from the Second Amendment, like salami slices, right, even more of that Second Amendment. So that's that's one of my causes. I aim to teach that show my grandkids how to do that just like I showed my kids and now I've got a granddaughter who came back and said my brother got there one you go. where's mine
0: <laughs> that's how it goes that's how it goes there you go, no, I love that we've known each other for for a long time I feel like I've known you my my whole life just because of uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just how I grew up and what I, where I was headed but uh, that story in yeah. particular at my uh, retirement from the military I called my my kids up and I gave them four things and I got this from you with slight Slight variations. I gave them each a Bible that has their, their name <laughs> on it. I gave them an old nautical compass because the, the Navy theme, yeah. of course. So they each got, right. they each got one got of it, these. They a got a, uh, a constitution, a hardcover constitution. Yeah. And then I handed them this and I said, Here's, here's the means to defend it.
1: There you go, so they buddy. These
0: tomahawks. <laughs> so each of the kids got that, but I, but I got that from you. And uh, I sincerely <laughs> appreciate everything that you've uh, you've done for me, my family, our country. What you did in uniform in Vietnam and after, and what you continue to do for this nation today. And uh, it it sincerely means a lot to me that you would take this time uh, to, to to spend together on the podcast. And um, thank you for everything. Well,
1: I love you. I love I love you. I love what you do. You've done it so well. And I say I've I've read the Bible cover to cover three times. Yours are the only novels I've read besides my own. <laughs> More than once. And I and I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for the things you do and the encouragement you offer the people. I mean it's not a negative experience. That's the wonderful thing about you. That's why I don't know if if, if uh well I sent you a note a
0: little while back and get a kick out thank of it. you for everything and uh <laughs> I, yeah and hopefully we'll meet up in person before too long and uh maybe uh, yeah, yeah maybe get out there and do a little little hunting or something but thank you for everything maybe and good. as always reach out if you need anything i'm i'm always standing by and uh
1: well as you know i like to close with the word semper fidelis because it's more than the slogan for u.s marines always faithful is a way of life god bless
0: right. you buddy god semper Fidelis. Fi. all right Mountain Tough, MTN Tough. Awesome. There's a huge announcement from the crew over at Mountain Tough, MTN Tough. After two years in the making, behind the scenes, the Mountain Tough Plus native app is finally here for you and ready to be downloaded on all the platforms. iPhone, Android, Apple TV, Roku, and more. MTN Tough Plus is the fitness app trusted by the dedicated, trusted and used by dedicated backcountry hunters, wildlife, firefighters, law enforcement officers, and U.S. military special operations forces. And now you can train on your time, your way from your phone, tablet, TV, or web. MDN Tough Plus is an all-access subscription, giving you access to all Mountain Tough programs, all new programs, and bonus content. Awesome. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I have prioritized finishing my latest novel and moving. This will probably be one of the last things i do from this studio as we move to the new house and new studio um, so that is about to change my priorities moving forward well i'm going to get better at scheduling these things and actually getting those workouts in then working for about three or four hours on the novel then jumping into the business side of thing for an hour or two but uh point being MTN Tough, Mountain Tough is the program that I am using. Uh, I've been scouring the website, checking out the app. It is absolutely awesome. And these days with so much going on, I need something that's going to tell me what to do Uh, because I'm going to shift right from doing one thing, bam, into the workout and having it right there, ready to rock. That's exactly what I need. So thank you guys for putting this together and putting so much thought, time, energy, Effort and testing into it. Um, because what I want to do these days uh is be ready for life. Uh and yeah, I'm probably not jumping out of a plane anymore and uh and going doing those special operations type missions. Um now it is training for life and to keep up with very active kids. Um, but this is what I'm gonna use: MTN Mountain Tough. Increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of workouts are available in the MTN Tough Plus subscription. You can start today with no equipment needed to start. That's what also that I liked what I saw. You can have equipment or no equipment. Um, and there are workouts for every level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, elite. Um, just get on there and check it out. And then more importantly, get after it. Uh, everything you need is in one spot. From cardio to strength, Mountain Tough programs are designed to be built around, the build the optimal athlete. Thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel, programs for everyone, those who hit the gym and the heavyweights, and those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Stream from your TV, laptop, mobile, or tablet. Download workouts in iOS and Android, compatible with Chromecast and AirPlay. MTN Tough has been the trusted, Training for dedicated individuals for years now, including U.S. military special operations and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you not to start today, as after two years of research and development, the MTN Tough Plus native app is ready to download. With MTN Tough Plus, you can conquer your goals with thousands of workouts and train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. MTN Tough is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all new Mountain Tough plus subscriptions with the code DANGERCLOSE. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE to receive 20% off brand new Mountain Tough plus subscription. That again is mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. So, my guest was just Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Amazing guy uh, with an incredible history. I have so much respect for him. And I can't remember where I first heard him tell the story about the gifts that he would give to his grandchildren Uh, a shotgun, a compass, and a Bible. And I took that to heart. And when I retired from the military, I gave my kids four things. And I didn't want to copy. Colonel North exactly, so I had to put my own little twist on it, so uh, I gave each of them a Bible with their name on it right here, help guide the way along with a compass, and instead of the uh, the kind that Colonel North gives, I give one with a little naval theme to it, so uh, they each get one of the, got one of these compasses right here, so both these things, the Bible and the compass to help guide them in life and then this hardcover constitution. And I think it is important to not just have a constitution that you can pull up online anywhere, um, but to have one that is in hardcover and is in a place of honor in your home. Because enshrined in here, in the back, in the Bill of Rights, are natural rights. Written down here, but they are natural, God-given rights. So uh, it's just important, I think, to do that. So they got this. And then I gave them this a Winkler Tomahawk and said, here's the means to defend it. So, uh, very cool. And obviously if you've been following me for a little bit, you know that, uh, the Tomahawk makes an appearance in all of the novels. Will it make an appearance in the fifth? What do you think? That's in the blood and that comes out May, 2022. So I'm not going to tell you, you're going to have to wait. What else are we going to talk about today? All right. Dynamis, my friend Dom Rasso over there. We're at SEAL Team 2 together. He now runs Dynamis Alliance right here. And once again, if you've read the novels, you know that I'm a fan of these. What is this? This is a combat flathead. Why do I have two? Because two is one. And what is one? One is none. So right there. Man, these things are awesome. Love these things. Uh, Used by James Reese in the novels. And uh, this thing is just friggin' solid. Love these things. So imagine my surprise, pleasant surprise, when Dom told me there's a generation two coming out, which I have right here. But speaking of Dan Winkler, also these, look at that. That's a little spike. So similar to the screwdriver, but a little sharper. So there's that one. And of course, once again, why two? Come on, one is none. Bam, look at that thing. So that's from Daniel Winkler right there. And then, here's the new one. So Dom, thank you so much for sending this, my friend. Awesome. Once again, dynamisalliance.com. So this is Gen 2, and I have opened it up already. So this isn't really a true unboxing, but uh, I'm going to open it again here because packaging, look at that. Nice, Dom. Solid. Look at that. And here it is. So this is the new one right here. And this one has a special coating on it. So you can go in salt water with this thing. It is not going to rust. And once again, super solid. You can get this thing you know, sweaty if you're carrying it uh, in a position where it's going to get sweaty. And uh, it's, this coating is incredible. So I'm not exactly sure what this coating is, but I know it's awesome. And then here is the, the sheath for it as well. Get this thing out of here. So there you go. It's really thin. Look at that. So you can carry that pocket inside the waistband, Molly gear, um, right here. So this thing, bam, awesome, Dom. Thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate this. Combat Flathead, Dynamis Alliance Generation Two is available right now. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original, presented by Six Hour. You can find more about Oliver North at olivernorth.com. You can link there to his Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter accounts. Be sure and read his blog, North Points, on there and sign up for his YouTube channel, Real American Heroes. Also, get his latest book, We Didn't Fight for Socialism, and read his first book, Under Fire. It's an uh, amazing portrait of an incredible cast of characters from that time in American history, but also chronicles Oliver North's entire life. So be sure to check all that out for sure. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels and you can go to officialjackcarr.com. Check out the website, the blog, latest book in the blood is coming this May. 2022, so be sure and pick that up for pre-order available now. You can go to jackcarusa.com for the merch. So be sure to check that out. Olivernorth.com, officialjackcar.com, and until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting.
2: get your podcasts.